purpose is transforming the world of work and business. Those leading the way are values-based and people-focused leaders who see business as a force for good. Host Kevin Monroe explores how tapping into the power of purpose infuses your business with meaning and touches the lives of your employees while positively impacting the communities you serve. With the Higher Purpose Podcast, here's Kevin Monroe. Hey, it's Kevin Monroe, and I want to welcome you or hopefully welcome you back to the Higher Purpose Podcast. Here we are in episode 110. And today, we have a returning guest. You may know her or you may have met her back in episode 102 when Melissa Hughes joined Kimberly Davis and me for a conversation about the imposter syndrome. Well, a couple of weeks ago, as I was watching one of Melissa's Neuro Nugget videos, which you'll hear about later in the podcast, she said something that just pricked me all the way to the core, and I knew it was time to invite her back, and this time for us to sit down for a one-on-one. If you're a regular, I'm doing something different with today's podcast. Let's see if you notice. Well, welcome, Melissa Hughes, and welcome back to the Higher Purpose Podcast. Thank you, Kevin. It is good to be back. Yeah, so, gosh, it was what episode, I think 102, you were here with Kimberly Davis and the three of us did this jam session on the imposter syndrome. Yes. Yes, we did. And you and I've known each other for, I don't know, a little over a year, around a year or something. And then we were just in a conversation last week around the Humans First Club where we were doing a deeper dive on this imposter syndrome. But Melissa, Let me just ask, before we get into this, there's so many things I want to talk with you about today. Neuroscience, the neuroscience of purpose and how our brains work. And oh my gosh, folks, if you're like me, somebody helping you understand how your brain works is magic because I'm not always sure my brain does work, (laughs) but it's working in different ways. But Melissa's here. So Melissa, is there something you want us to know about you that creates the context for this conversation? Yeah, so I think it's interesting for people to know that I started this whole journey in a fourth grade classroom. I was teaching kids how to learn, and I found it just kind of ludicrous that I would be tasked with teaching children how to learn, and no one taught me how the brain works. Mm -hmm. And fast forward to today, that's kind of where my journey started, but fast forward to today, everybody wants to know how to make the brain work better. And what I have learned on that very long, because I'm very old, that very long journey is that we have much more control over our brain than we think. How many times do you just think about what exactly is going on between my ears up there? Like we don't think that way, but once you know what's going on between your ears, Mm. then it changes the way you see what's going on in front of you. So that's really good because I do think there are times I realize that I've been hijacked by my brain. Yeah. I find myself down a road or maybe a dead end or a cul-de-sac and I'm going around in circles and I'm like, how did I get here? And how do I stop this and go somewhere else? Right. So part of this is you're saying if we understand this, we can avoid some of those trips. Sure. A really good example is cognitive bias. I mean, we all have cognitive biases that are unconscious. They happen and we don't even know about them. And I'll give you a really good example. 
there's a bias called the affinity bias and it's the people like me bias. And you ask people, are you prejudiced? Are you tolerant? Are you inclusive? And people say, of course I'm not prejudiced. Of course I'm tolerant. Of course I'm inclusive. And then you say, you know what? I'm going to throw out some words and I just want you to listen to these words and I want you to pay attention to how you feel. So if I throw out words like Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, Hispanic, African-American, tattoos, punk. Now, do you feel yourself, and I could go on and on and on. Do you feel yourself, maybe you don't say, I don't accept those people, but do you feel yourself putting them in buckets? People like me, people not like me. We can't help that. That happens. I mean, I'm saying the words, I know what's going on up here and I'm doing it too. (laughs) I mean, we just can't help it. And so when I go in and talk to folks and say, you know, these biases, they're going to happen whether we know about them or not. But if we know about them, then we can recognize it when it happens. We may not be able to stop it, but we can recognize it when it happens. So in the workplace, for example, If you and I are having a conversation, let's say I come in and I'm applying for a job and this is our interview. And we have a conversation about the University of Akron, which is my alma mater. And you say, oh my gosh, my nephew goes to the University of Akron. That little thing that has nothing to do with the job connects us. Mm -hmm. And that little thing makes us alike. Mm. And so I actually, by, by, creating that connection, I've actually given myself an advantage to the job. So all things being equal, another person with the exact same skill set as me, who doesn't have the University of Akron on his or her resume, I'm going to get the advantage there. The converse is also true. If there's something about me that stands out that you do not like, whether that is Maybe I'm wearing a particular religious symbol on a necklace, or I have tattoos, or purple hair, or Mm. I don't know, I'm wearing an all Black Lives Matter t-shirt, or an All Lives Matter t-shirt, or whatever lives matter, whatever that is. If I create this dissonance between your values and my values now, no matter what my skill set is, you don't like me. Mm. Mm. It's interesting, and we have to guard against it. Okay. So, Melissa, the reason, well, there's several reasons, but one reason you and I are talking today, besides the fact that we're just friends, but I saw a post a couple of weeks ago. You posted a video on LinkedIn and it caught my attention. And as I was watching that video, I was like, oh my gosh, I've got to get Melissa to join me on the Higher Purpose Podcast and us kind of start talking about this and use this as a launching pad to talk about other things. And your topic was psychological numbing. Mm -hmm. Now, take us into that, whatever door you want to use to enter into that video and that conversation. But look, tee it up and let's unpack that some. Well, I'll go through the same door that I used at the time for the video because I was actually struggling. I know what psychological numbing is and I recognize the same with the biases. I recognized that it was happening and the context for it was the mass shootings. And, you know, I was thinking about how I responded when I heard Sunday morning that there was not 
just one shooting, but there was another one in Dayton. And my response on Sunday morning was, oh my God, another shooting. And I just kind of had this like defeated, like another one. Oh my gosh. And I recognize this to be psychological numbing and I'll put it into perspective for you. I thought about how I reacted when I heard about the Sandy Hook shooting. When I heard about those 20 kids that got killed at Sandy Hook, it brought me to my knees. Mm. Like literally I stopped when I heard that, I stopped what I was doing and I was literally on my knees trying to wrap my head around how somebody could go into an elementary school and shoot up kids. And so fast forward to where I was a couple of weeks ago, I wasn't on my knees equally as devastating. I mean, the tragedy is a tragedy, whether it's a rock concert or a school or a Walmart, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's lives lost. And regardless of how it happened, I recognized in myself that there was this psychological numbing that I was experiencing because we do this shooting drill over and over and over again. And psychic numbing just says that the emotional magnitude of something bad, whatever that bad thing is, and that bad thing could be race riots or mass shootings or whatever the bad stimuli is, the more you're exposed to it, the less you feel it. Mm. Yeah. The more you're exposed to it, the less you feel it. And so many things have changed in the world, not just the stimuli, but now how news of the stimuli spreads instantly. Yes. Right. You and I are of an age where we remember Walter Cronkite signing off the news, the nightly news. That's the way it <laughs> was or is today. Right. And and you had to wait until the next morning for another cycle of news. Yeah. And we have a nonstop steady stream of news. And often it's a nonstop steady stream of bad news. Bad news. Yeah. So this psychological numbing is happening all the time. How is it affecting us and the world around us? I mean, as we are, I heard the phrase, the dumbing down of America. What you're talking about is the numbing down of America. Mm -hmm. What's happening to us? So before anybody gets all nervous, this is not an expose on how I feel about gun control or not gun rights, but it's really, I'm so glad you asked that because it's not because we don't care and it's not because we don't have a passionate position on any particular topic. And in this case, it happens to be gun control, but it's not that we don't care. We absolutely care. But the more we're exposed to that particular bad stimuli, the more desensitized we get. And here's the important part. It's not just an individual phenomenon. It manifests itself in societies. And the way it works is as the number of victims and a tragedy increases, we're not just desensitized to feeling it, that thing that I experienced that Sunday morning when I got up and heard about another shooting. Yeah. It's not just that we're desensitized to feeling that, but our empathy, our willingness to do something, anything decreases. And that's because there's just this overwhelming magnitude of there's nothing we can do. And I think right now we're experiencing that both individually and collectively as a society. I mean, Melissa, that is why I wanted to reach out to you and us have this conversation now, because 
I'm not qualified to host those other conversations. I had friends that are wanting somebody to host the conversation, legislation, gun control, all of this stuff. I'm like, (laughs) it's way bigger than that for me. And I'm not qualified to do that. But when we start talking about this, hey, where all of us are tempted to feel there's nothing I can do. Absolutely. I am hopeless. And if we're hopeless, it's not far before we're helpless, you know, and just lost. I'm like, I don't want to see that happen. And I heard you start talking about something, right? And so I'm going to introduce something. I looked up, this didn't originate with Joseph Stalin, even though a lot of people think it did. But the quotation, while some people think it's callous, it is, but it emphasizes what you said. If one man dies of hunger, that's a tragedy. If millions die, that's only statistics. Yeah. That something shifts in us. So it is true. And I think when I was trying to come to grips with why am I not feeling the same angst for these folks in Dayton or wherever as I did for the folks in Newtown, I mean, lives are lives, but it is true that the value of a single life or the impact of a single death diminishes against the backdrop of this overwhelming magnitude of the issue. Hmm. And they've done studies, they've looked at how we view helping people. And we are much more willing to help one person than we are to help 10 people. If we can help one person, that seems to be much more of a greater significance to us. Hmm. They've done all these studies. And when it comes to like unthinkable tragedy, big numbers are really abstract where one Mm. is a real person. And so that quote about one death is a tragedy, but a million deaths, that's just number. And the best example of that is the Syrian boy who drowned and washed up on the Turkish beach. Before that death, there were over 5,000 refugees that were killed in Syria. I mean, in that year, 5,000 people lost their lives. That image of that one little boy raised more money and created more policy change. And it actually got greater awareness than all those 5,000 lives put together. 5,000 lives, what can I do? We just shake our heads and we say, that's terrible, but what can I do? So what can we do? Make this as personal as you want to make it because you did on your video. Okay, I want you to answer this two ways. One, what can I do? Make that personal, but I'm also to the person listening, what can you do? Invite them in to take action. Yeah, so I think the biggest thing is understand that this psychic numbness thing is a phenomenon that it's just gonna happen until we kind of grab it by the shoulders and say, no, I'm not gonna be numb about this. You know, the flip side of that is, There's an awful lot of bad stuff happening around us. So if we stew in that, it's going to make us crazy. But the thing that you need to know is that fighting psychic numbness takes intention. Mm -hmm. We have to be intentional about that because just as all of the research tells us so far, the next shooting, and there will be another one, it's going to make us more numb, more apathetic, less willing to help our neighbor. And the best that we can do today is understand the phenomenon. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is, if that one means so much more than the masses, then find one. Find one person that you can make a difference for. For me, 
I don't know how to make change in the whole gun issue, but I know that I can work with foster kids and I can make the difference in one child. You know, I work with at-risk inner city kids and I can make a difference for one child and maybe have a conversation about how to keep her safe and get her belly full and give her, be a champion for her dreams for the future. That I think is the best thing that we can do. So find an issue that is near and dear to your heart that is perhaps local. It doesn't have to be local because it could be distance, but you're still doing something for one person. And gosh, if all of us did something for one person, and then what do we know about that? That there is a ripple effect Absolutely. of that. Then we create these waves and ripples of kindness and we are taking, because we're being intentional. So I know people talk about random acts of kindness. I'm kind of like, well, that's really good. I'm much more a fan of intentional acts of kindness. Doesn't have to be small, small, large, whatever. Do something intentional to, as our friend Mike Vacanti says, lift others. Yeah. Do yeah. something to encourage someone, whatever that is for you. So that's where we wanted to start this conversation. That's just kind of the on-ramp. Is there something else you want to say about that before we? There is just one other thing. So I actually just experienced this last week. I was traveling and for anybody that travels, you know, that planes, trains, and automobiles is a grind sometimes. And so one of the things that I have been really working on doing is when I know I'm going to be in a situation that is going to be full of irritants and inconveniences. <laughs> when I was teaching, we used to call it catch them being good. Mm-hmm. And I look for that one person that I can do something cool for. And in I'm never going to see these people again. So on one hand, it's random because it's not right. a pro quo. It's not a relationship I have with anyone. But on the other hand, to your point, it's very intentional. And last week, I found my person at the Tampa Marriott Hotel. And I said, this person really knows the meaning of hospitality. And I asked her for her supervisor's name. And I wrote her supervisor an email the next day saying, this person is a great representation of the Marriott brand. And, you know, so that took me all of two minutes and it took that random act of kindness and turned it into an intentional one. And I love the way you put that, Kevin. It's so important. I love that. Like you say, if you're traveling, there are so many opportunities (laughs) to do something kind because just so many things go wrong. And there's so many people that are ready to jump on the thing that goes wrong and amplify it and elevate it and make it an international incident out of what was. So here's the G.K. Chesterton quote I shared with a friend that was traveling a couple of weeks ago and having a really horrific day. Chesterton said, An adventure is only an inconvenience rightly considered. An inconvenience is an adventure wrongly considered. Love that. But when we're out there, hey, is it an adventure or is it an inconvenience? Well, and also, don't forget, there's another quote out there that says we find mostly what we're looking for. So, you know, when I go out there and I say, okay, I've got a flight from... Fort Myers to Charlotte to Boston, and I'm going to be tired and probably cranky and you're out of your routine. So you say, I'm going to look for that one person. 
who deserves a boost today. Mm. And I get the biggest boost of all. Like the Marriott supervisor, she enjoyed that. The employee, she enjoyed that. But my brain got the biggest boost of all because it kept me looking for the good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So here's another little hack. And I wish I could say it was original to me. It wasn't. I learned it from a friend and it just makes a huge difference. A little bag of Ghirardelli chocolates, the individually wrapped. Buy one, give it to the flight attendants when you walk on the plane because flight attendants have a thankless job by and large. They're usually overwhelmed and they're hearing everybody groaning and moaning and all of the complaints. And when you walk in the door, you do something nice for them, it makes their day. And it's just a little thing, but it's an intentional act of kindness that shifts the energy for the rest of the flight. Kevin, I love that so much. And I am going to do that. I'll tell you what, the best time to do that is when the flight has been delayed and you're waiting and waiting because now people are irritated and they're angry and they're going to miss their connecting. And so if you think about those people standing on that airplane watching all of these angry people, you know, that there's the whole thing about emotional contagion. We spread our emotions. We spread that cortisol when we're feeling stressed or angry. You can do that, or you could go to the news cafe and pick up a bag of chocolates and give it to that. And that changes everything. It changes everything. Changes everything. Yeah. And it's just one of these things that creates a whipple. All right. So Melissa, gosh, you know, we could just make this a four hour podcast, but I think we probably <laughs> lose some listeners at some point. So I want to shift because I've got you to talk about neuroscience and there is something I've wanted someone to talk about for a long time on this. And that's kind of the neuroscience of purpose. And if you want to throw in their positivity, that's fine. But the neuroscience of purpose, why is purpose important? And what does having even just a sense of purpose do for us, in us? So there's a Japanese word called ikigai, and it literally means, it literally translates to a reason to get up in the morning, a reason for being. You know, you think about the people that are most engaged with their jobs or just positive. Like, I don't think you can talk about purpose without talking about positivity because I think that they go hand in hand. They do for me at least. We are much more positive when we have purpose and that purpose. So, so the human brain likes challenge. It's a myth that we want everything to be easy. We like challenge. We like to sink our teeth into something. Mm -hmm. The caveat is that something needs to be something that matters to us. Mm -hmm. And if it matters to us, and when you think about the four kind of uh, circles that overlap and you get to that one little sweet spot, it's what I do well, what the world needs, those kinds of things. And you come together and you say, this is my purpose. Mm -hmm. The world needs more of this. This is what I do really well. And it's at that place where you can be both challenged and positive. There's a joy in that kind of challenge. So what's going on in our brains at that moment? So when we are in a very purposeful place, we're hanging out in the prefrontal cortex of our head. So in the center of the brain is the limbic system and it's the emotional sentinel. And when we're in a very purposeful place, the limbic system is pushing out 
the happy chemicals, the chemicals that facilitate activity in the prefrontal cortex, where is all the decision-making, it's our impulse control, it's our critical thinking skills, it's all those higher level thinking skills. What's interesting about when we're in that space, our cortisol production goes way, way down. Now we never really turn off the cortisol, the stress hormones in our brain, because it's what keeps us alive. It's what keeps us from walking out into the middle of traffic, right? We're constantly searching for the danger around us because we want to live through it. But when you think about decreasing stress, instead of thinking of ways that you can decrease stress, think about ways that you can increase the serotonin, the oxytocin, the dopamine. Those are the good chemicals that are flowing when you are actually experiencing purpose Mm. in your life and positivity and gratitude and all those good things. Okay. So when you're describing this, what I've read or understood, heard different places, right? And when people try to ask me to explain purpose, which people ask a lot because this is the higher purpose podcast, that doesn't make me the expert on it. It just makes me the pioneer. I mean, I'm just desperate to find it in my life and help to share with others what I find. I'm a guide. I'm not a guru about purpose. But to me, the sense is that purpose is that connection to something that's bigger than me. Yeah. Beyond me. And so purpose is what gets me out of this small life of which I'm the center of. Right. Right. And it gets me thinking about these other things, other people. How does purpose in the world manifest? Well, it's doing something for others rather than just me. So those are the things I see. What's firing in my brain when I'm starting to focus on others more than I am me? Well, I think it is focusing on others more than yourself, but I also think it it is seeing yourself as this small piece of this great big picture and how interconnected we are going back to that ripple effect, like understanding that you are just one teeny tiny little person speck on this great big blue marble, but you can do something that causes a ripple effect beyond what you will even understand or recognize or be aware of. So that's one thing that I think is important. And then the other thing is if you just boil those kind of, I'm going to take the three happy chemicals, dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin. And this is the simplistic nickel tour of these three chemicals, but. That way I might understand it. Okay, Melissa, I like the simple tour. So I just want to preface that there's a lot more going on with these neurotransmitters than what I'm sharing here. But oxytocin is the cuddle drug. It's the drug that is released when we have sex, when we hug, when a mother breastfeeds her child. But we are wired to connect and we have neural pathways in our brain specifically dedicated to oxytocin and making those connections with one another. And whether that is telephonically or you know digitally like how we are doing today or face to face we need that human connection we need to make those ripples in our human spaces so that's oxy serotonin is that overall well-being but it's also i am significant i matter to somebody we get serotonin when we're recognized at work when your boss comes up to you and says Hey, you did a great job on that project. 
your brain just got a boost of serotonin. And guess what? That serotonin boost is going to decrease the cortisol flow. Mm. So the best time for a boss to tell his or her team, recognize great things they're doing is when they're the most stressed out because that's when the increase in serotonin comes and the decrease in cortisol. And then finally, dopamine. Dopamine is that that I did it. Like I took this chance. I wanted to do this thing and I did it. And it is making that impact, making that footprint in a positive way in somebody else's life. So that's a pretty powerful cocktail going on in your head. And you think about all of those chemicals are really activating the thinking part of your brain and not the survival part of your brain. Think about all the good thinking you can do then when you've got all that good stuff going on. Okay. So if we understand it or when we understand it, we can do these things with more intentionality. Absolutely. But you don't have to understand it to benefit from it. Absolutely not. Right. But here's what I will say. Understanding what's happening actually intensifies the benefit. I agree. I just think, Melissa, when I look at this and sometimes I've done something and people go, well, gosh, you know, that was amazing or that had this impact. How did you know? And I'm like, I didn't. I mean, it wasn't that there was this deliberate strategy. Somehow there was just a sense of intuition to go do something, but it's along one of these paths. I don't know, but I do think there is benefit to doing it intentionally. But I just can at least attest to that many times I've kind of stumbled my way into doing this stuff. And then I understand why it is so profound and the impact it has. And then you go, okay, now what if we do that by design? Right. And actually, I think that's one of the coolest things in the world is stumbling upon something good and going, wow, that is awesome. But then to take that and go, wow, I'm going to do that again tomorrow because that really felt good today, you know, and or making a positive impact on somebody else's life. We talk about gratitude and we all know how good it feels when someone appreciates something that we've done or if you've just extended yourself in a kind way, that feels good for somebody to say thank you. But here's the kicker. The thanker benefits more than the thanky. Okay. Okay. The person who does the thanking, the expresses the gratitude actually benefits more from a neurological perspective. That person benefits more than the person who got thanked. I want you to unpack that a bit, but I'm going to pause and I want to ask you. So Melissa, I got you to be my conspirator in this because normally I start the podcast by asking people, what are you grateful for? You and I chose not to do that today because we knew we were going to end on this gratitude. If we started the conversation with gratitude, we may never get to the other things. So what does that do for folks that are listening that were thinking, where's the gratitude moment? Where's the gratitude moment? Where's the gratitude moment? What did I do to them? What happened in their brain? (laughs) Well, first of all, there was that little like kind of, oh, something's off here. Kevin is taking me down a different path today. And I know that your listeners trust you enough to go down that path with you. So there was that. A little dissonance, right? The brain does like novelty. The brain does like surprise in a good way, a good surprise. But when you think about that whole idea of gratitude and people say, yes, 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 I know gratitude is important. So here's the thing. If I'm having a particularly 
terrible day. And we've all had terrible days. Like I'm going to go back to my fourth grade classroom and Alexander and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And I have had that day. Even in Australia, I have had that day. So you think about that really bad day. And there are a couple ways that you can approach that day. You can throw your hands in the air and say, I quit. I give up. I'm going home. Or you can grind through it. You can just say, you know what? I'm just going to keep doing this thing and then I'll get to the end of my day and then I can call it a day. Or you can find something that you're really grateful for because the best way to get out of a negative feedback loop is to intentionally break it with gratitude. And so when I say the person who expresses gratitude gets more neurologically than the person who is being thanked, it's true. So if you think about when somebody's having a really bad day, what do we want to do for them? Well, we want to do something that brings them out of that bad mood. We want to cheer them up. We want to tell them, you're good at this and don't feel bad about that mistake or that failure. This is So we do things to kind of lift them up. But the thing about gratitude is it lifts us up even more. So on those days, where you are just having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, the best thing you can do is to walk down the hall and say thank you to someone in your corner of the world. Thank you. I appreciate you. That is going to break that negative loop. It's crazy, but it works. It is crazy. And it does work. And here's what's amazing. And I'm not going to call names, but there's a lady that's joined us for the Gratitude Challenge that was having one of those really tough days, not just a tough day, a tough year. She knew gratitude, just like I don't. I don't like using the word should, but I know the benefits of gratitude. But there are times that life hits us so hard Mm -hmm. that we forget and we go days, a week or longer getting lost in that and forgetting about gratitude. And then all of a sudden, somebody flips the switch on, reminds us to be grateful. Mm -hmm. Which is one of the things that I love about your gratitude challenge. Mm -hmm. So you have the gratitude challenge that says for 10 days, you're going to be grateful. You're going to express gratitude for 10 days. So here's the thing, you know, just like anything that we would put on our calendar, like if I want to go to the gym for five days in a row, that's in my head. I'm not going to forget about that. It's when we don't make it part of our routine, when it slides out of our intentional purview, that's when we kind of stop doing it. And the other thing to remember is on those days that we're really, really stressed out and the cortisol is really flowing, our thinking brain is not in charge. And when you're in the weeds, all you can see sometimes is the weeds. So tell me this, talk about your gratitude practice your lifestyle of gratitude. What does that look like, Melissa? How do you start the day? Do you weave it in throughout the day? So, yes, I wrote a gratitude journal. I was learning all of this about gratitude and I said, you know, there's a way to make it an intentional part of your day. So I wrote the gratitude journal and the gratitude journal is structured to start your day with five minutes of gratitude and end your day with five minutes of gratitude. Mm. But you do so much more grateful thinking than just 10 minutes. Because what happens is in the beginning of the day, you look ahead to your day and you see what's on your schedule, what's what you think about what your day is going to look like. And then think about 
what are the two or three things that you have to do to be really, really successful? Like to call that day of victory, mm. what do you have to do? And then also looking ahead to that day, what happens is when you think about yourself being victorious, mm. when you think about yourself being successful, you envision that. Mm-hmm. And so what you've done is you have alerted the reticular activation system in your brain or the brain's bouncer. You have said to the brain's bouncer, I want anything, any opportunity that will help me get to that space, let that opportunity in. Because when you think about the number of opportunities that we are exposed to that we are never even aware of, Mm -hmm. the brain's bouncer, once you say, I want to be victorious in this particular thing, well, then you're going to look for all the ways, all the things you need. You're going to pick up those tools along the way to be victorious in whatever that task is. And the other thing is there's a daily dare on there. So sometimes the dare is send a text, send an emoji text to somebody and just say, have a great day. Hmm. Doing those little things for somebody else, it's so much more about doing it for yourself. And then at the end of the day, you're going to have to write down a few things that you're grateful for one way that you made the world a better place. So knowing that you're going to have to write those things down in your last five minutes before you put a big red X through that calendar block, you are going to be looking for those things all day long. And you think, oh, this could be one of my grateful, this could be one of the things I'm grateful for. Or, no, maybe that's, maybe it's the sunrise. Whatever it is, as you go through your day, you're kind of making little tick marks and putting those, like filing those under, Mm, I need to figure that out. And so at the end of the day, when you're thinking through all of those good things that you collected along the day, guess what you're doing? You're putting your brain in a very positive space right before you go to bed. Would you rather go to bed with stress or would you rather go to bed with positivity? You're going to get a much better night's sleep with positivity. Okay. So for you, you bookend your day with gratitude. Right. Weave it in throughout. Right. And you said something earlier. I want you to share that. Brene Brown. I love that. Yeah. So and I don't remember who Brene Brown was quoting. Brene Brown was quoting someone. I was listening to one of her audio books, but she was quoting her friend that said, the first thought of the day that most of us have is I didn't get enough sleep last night. The last thought of the day we have is I didn't get enough done today. And that's how most People in the Western world live their day. That's so true. That is so true. And so what you're saying, your practice is to, let's swap that. And here's what I love, Melissa. You understand what this is doing for our brains and our bodies. Right. To bookend the day. Start the day with gratitude and then wrap it up with gratitude and then just kick the cortisol to the curb or keep it, dial it down. I mean, we still need it for the fight, right? If danger does really come, but just not living in that heightened hyper mode of where cortisol's ruling the day and the good cocktail is not in the picture. Absolutely. And, you know, I think you also hit on something that I think is so important. You have to be grateful for your own accomplishments. Like when people think of gratitude, they think of, I'm grateful for my spouse, or I'm grateful for my kids, or I'm grateful for my boss, or I'm grateful I have a good job. Or, But you have to be grateful for 
the really great pieces and parts of you. Mm. Because sometimes I think I am so grateful that I am in a position where I can help these foster kids Yeah, in the way that I can. Like that warms my heart so much. But, you know, you can also be grateful for your ability to be a good father. Mm-hmm. If you have children, if you're a great parent, be grateful that you had role models or you had someone put you on this path to understand what it means to be a good parent. Yeah. That's a gift. And we can be grateful to ourselves. Well, good. Okay. So I want to ask you, is there a way to tie gratitude back into where we started and how we can overcome psychological numbing? I think yes. And I think it is going back to that think one. Mm. Think one. So when you think about gratitude, and if you're not for the folks out there that have heard about gratitude and they've never really gotten into it, think about one thing at the end of the day, just start with one. At the end of the day, say, I'm going to keep a little notebook by my bed. And every day before I go to bed, I'm going to write one thing down that I am grateful for. And maybe it is that pumpkin spice lattes are back at Starbucks. I mean, it doesn't have to be profound. It's just getting into that intentional space. I think when you go there, then what that does is that makes us feel more empowered. Remember the psychological numbing is all about helplessness and hopelessness. And so what that does is that puts you in much more of a positive mindset and less helpless. Mm. That's not a word. That's not good English, but less helpless, more empathetic, more empowered that if you can wrap your head around the fact that you can do something good for one person. Yeah. And some days that one person needs to be you. We need self-care too. We need to take care of ourselves. And the other thing that I would like to get your thought on to contribute to that is to recognize so many of us, we just write off little things because they're too little to be significant. Melissa, if I can look at any lesson that's really been amplified for me over the last six weeks, eight weeks, it is it may be small, but it is often extremely significant, right? And significance has no correlation to the size of the act, be it small or large, right? It doesn't take something big to be significant. No, it does not at all. And you're right. I think we discount the gifts that we have to give, whether that be a kind word or time or just opening the door for someone. In this world, in the world we live in today, where so many people are just totally lost in their own space because as they're going through life, they're sequestered in the headphones in their ears, that they're totally oblivious to people around them. So if you just acknowledge that other person, if you see them and then you open the door for them or do something, smile at them, whatever that is, right? Those things are significant because most people go through the day being unseen, unheard. It is so true. And I wrote a blog post not too long ago. I think I have a video that goes with it that is compliments are like mini orgasms in the brain. (laughs) We love compliments. And you know what? It's the same with gratitude. The giver gets more than the receiver. So here's my challenge. Okay. Today. 
sometime between the time that you're done listening to this podcast and the time that you put your head on the pillow, give someone a really sincere compliment. Oh, I and love watch it. what happens. Just watch what it. happens. And so what you do is you put your brain in the market for looking for good things. Where can I compliment someone? Just like my Marriott girl. Who can I compliment today? Like if you put yourself in that market, you're going to find all kinds of things that you never noticed before. Isn't that amazing? And here's the point is that what I hear you saying is rather than feeling that we are the passenger in our own life, we can put ourselves in the driver's seat. Oh, I love that. Absolutely. What we're looking for. Yes. Yes. So, Melissa, two things before we go. What would you like to say to wrap this up for now? We'll have to have another one of these. But for now, what puts a bow on this conversation for you, for the listener? So I think the takeaway for me is what you just said. We are in much more control over our brains than we think. I mean, how many times do you really stop and think about what's actually going on up there? That's, I think, where we started this whole thing. And that's where I'm going to come back to. So understanding that gratitude, those little things, compliments, we have all kinds of neuroscience about what a smile, what a big belly laugh does to the brain. Like, when was the last time you laughed till you had tears in your eyes? Like, you know, those kinds of things, it's just like a party in your brain. It's streamers and confetti and all kinds of good stuff going on up there. So in these times we find ourselves in where it seems like a never-ending stream of negativity in the news and in our country, across the world, whatever. Remember that we have that power to make good stuff happen in our brain. And it starts with one. Pick one person. And if you just say every day, I'm going to do one thing for one person, I'm going to create one little ripple effect. And you just keep doing that. That's awesome. We all did that. If we all did that. If just the people listening to this podcast do that, what a difference we would make in the world because we're all doing it. The waves and ripples of that. Thank you, Melissa. Now, the other question is, there are people that want more of Melissa in their life. There are ways to do that because I look forward to your weekly nuggets. So how do people get more of Melissa? Well, I do send a neuro nugget out every Friday, and I promise not to junk up your inbox. I am very, very conscientious about that. Nobody likes spam. That's just rude. But I do send a three to five minute video nugget out about something that I find fascinating about the brain that I think everybody else should know about. Sometimes it's about bias. Sometimes... I mean, the topics all vary, but you can subscribe to that list at melissahughes.rocks and go to the contact tab and there's a block there to sign me up for a neuro nugget. And my book, Happier Hour with Einstein and the Happier Hour with Einstein Gratitude Journal are both available on Amazon. All right. Melissa, thank you so very much. And it was one of those neuro nuggets that prompted this conversation today. I am so glad. And thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. Oh, absolutely. Well, I hope you understand why we punted the gratitude moment until the end. If we'd started with gratitude with Melissa, we would have just probably gotten lost in a conversation about gratitude, not 
that there's anything wrong with that. But I did want to have this conversation and to explore this whole idea of psychological numbing because so much of it is happening to you and me and around you and me and to the people we care about. And we cannot let ourselves succumb to psychological numbing. So I want to invite you to do something today, to take action and to activate compassion and to be an agent of kindness, of intentional kindness. Yes, it can be random. It's okay that you don't know the person, but just don't do it just purely sporadically. Let it be intentional. And I love the way Melissa explained the reticular activating system, that you and me, we have a bouncer on call, on duty, in our brain, and that we can activate what we allow or what we bounce out of our brain. And the idea that gratitude is vital to that process. Well, speaking of gratitude, we are just about to kick off another round of the Gratitude Challenge. And whether gratitude is brand new for you and this would be your first time joining us for the Gratitude Challenge or whether you're a veteran of gratitude and have been with us for previous versions of the challenge, we want you to join us. We're starting September 9th. You can go to thegratitudechallenge.community. It's a different domain, .community. Because like the finer things in life, we believe that gratitude is also better together. Please join us. Hey, and until we connect again, I want to invite and encourage you to live, love, and lead with purpose. Do you have a high stakes initiative that is stuck, stalled out, or stymied, and you're not sure what to do now and how to forge a path forward? The situation is not as grim as you think it is. We can help. Contact Kevin to explore how a winning conversation may be exactly what you need to break the gridlock, unite your team in purpose, and accelerate traction. Call 678-744-5111 or email kevin at higherpurposepodcast.com.